every season in the life of our church, we pick out two practices. One is kind of an inhale spiritual practice and one is an exhale sort of like love and action practice that we can join in together as a church um, because we're trying not just to be a sermon here in club but to follow Jesus together in the real details of our life. And um, so during Advent, our, our inhale practice is uh, our sort of daily spiritual practice is silence and solitude to kind of push back on the frenzy of the season. And we're also challenging ourselves. Our love and action shared practice is uh, generosity. You can find details about these tgcparkslope.com slash practices, resources, things that will help you if you've never uh, done spiritual disciplines of any kind before or or connected with God on a regular basis. Uh, These... uh these resources will help you move in, in the right direction. But we also want you to hear stories of what these things look like in real action. So Katie Bernard is going to come this morning, welcome her. She's going to share a story of what generosity has looked like in her own life. Welcome, Katie. Let's Christmas cheer for her. So as Caleb said, my name's Katie. If you have a middle schooler or high schooler, they know me as the snack lady. It only took about 20 years for me to to become cool to middle schoolers, so that's been great. Um, But today, I'd like to share a little bit about how God is transforming me through generosity. Um, It's been a years-long process, going back to 2012, but the Spirit has moved in some pretty profound ways in just the last two months. Um, On November 15th, a month ago today, I set up my first auto-tithe to TGC. Uh, I've given off and on over the years, but I've never given regularly, nor had I ever given 10%. I had felt convicted about my lack of tithing for years, Um, but it was an area of my life that I deeply wanted to control. Uh, Like many of you, I assume, I have had seasons of unemployment in this city, and I'm generally fearful of going through another season like that. I mentioned this in an offhanded way to my Colossians group in October, and Fanny Chen, bless her, she's one of my favorites, uh, she gently reminded me of God's promise in Malachi 3.10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I wrestled with that promise for most of October and into November. And as I did, the Spirit slowly reframed my memories of unemployment. Uh, You see, I'm a type A human being, and I keep a Google calendar for God, as well as an email. That's how I journal. That's how I pray. During the day, I'll shoot off an email to God. I keep uh, annual reminders and notifications for the times where God's faithful to me as a way to remind me of those things. It's like a contemporary way of building an altar or raising an Ebenezer. Um, So as I wrestled with Malachi 3.10, I looked back at those Ebenezers from 2012 and 2013, and times had been tough. I didn't know how I was going to pay rent or bills in any of those 14 months. But I had also seen daily faithfulness from the Lord. I'll just share a couple of those with you. Um, Allison Clardy had always asked me to babysit, and she made sure to pay me. Um, she also offered to, uh, to get me a car home on those nights. Other people in this church offered me odd jobs, from other babysitting to moving and painting and administrative work. Andrew Bell took me out to lunch every Wednesday to cheer me up, and he usually bought me a cupcake afterwards. <laughs> and my life group prayed for me weekly 
to the point of how long, oh Lord, must we wait? And someone at this church who asked me not to reveal his name used all of his savings from 2013 to pay off one of my credit cards. In these past two months, God reminded me that no matter what, each month I had just enough to pay my rent and my bills. And in that time, I grew relationships in our community that I will have for the rest of my life. I found a place in our church, and I experienced an agency in our family that I still exercise to this day. God slowly healed deep wounds that I had sustained in previous faith communities, and I found myself on the other side of a long season of expectant waiting, experiencing deep, sustainable blessing from our faithful God, and in possession of the career God had promised me. It's so, so good. But over time, I forgot that faithfulness. I started to listen to the voice of the accuser, and he slowly but surely reframed those many blessings and even those relationships for me, to the point that I stood here on Sundays and said that generosity liturgy, and in my head, I would justify why I don't tithe. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not commenting or critiquing your own generosity. Rather, I want to articulate the lie that I fell for because it was so subtle, and it drastically affected the posture of my heart. Even after experiencing God's faithfulness and the generosity of our community, I believe the lie that it was more important to give as I was comfortable and to prioritize making this city a sustainable place for me to live. After all, I'm, I'm a 30-something. I got debt, you know? I have things to do, things to pay for. And I'm doing all I can to try to make this place a, sustain, a sustainable place to live so I don't have to move somewhere more affordable. The posture of my heart was corrupted. In this one small financial corner, I had submitted other parts of my life freely, my identity, my vocation, my relationships, but I couldn't submit my security and my comfort, my streaming subscriptions or my wine budget, or my future. That God couldn't have. Fast forward to these past couple months, and I finally gave voice to the conviction in my heart. I acknowledged the shame I felt, and God spoke a gentle, life-changing, timeless promise from the book of Malachi. On November 15th, I stood in my kitchen, running late for work. I set up my first tithe. I was nervous and a bit nauseous, but I did it. And later that afternoon at the office, I learned that not only was I being promoted, but I also received a a substantial bonus and a substantial raise. God show me yet again that blessing lies on the other side of obedience. This time it didn't take 14 months, it just took five hours. (laughs) My second tithe paid this morning, December 15th. And you know what? I'm not nauseous anymore. In fact, I'm I'm finding joy in budgeting, (laughs) joy in turning off subscriptions, joy in the freedom I have from fear and shame the freedom I have to accept God's invitation to a life of abundance and to be transformed by the renewing of my spirit. I have joy in clinging to the unfailing word of God. This month, we have an invitation to give abundantly, to give towards the many initiatives that sustain our church and community and people like me. I hope you truly see this as an invitation, not just to generosity, but to accepting and holding on to the promises of God to partner with him in his kingdom work here on earth. It truly is a discipline, 
but through it you will find refining transformation and an abundance that you never expected. After all, he's Jehovah Jireh, and he will provide. Thanks be to God. So, thank you. Our teaching text today is Luke 1, verses 26 through 56. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. Last week, uh, near the beginning of our message, we reflected on the question, have you ever been betrayed? Um, and not just because it's a question that's guaranteed to elicit Christmas cheer, um, but because uh, the story of Joseph, it sort of uh, demands that you look at that question and consider what that would actually feel like. I read, I read a commentator 
uh, this week who, who kind of almost offhandedly said that this question, uh, have I been betrayed or is God tricking me or has God deceived me in some way, um, uh, a, a version of that question has a rich tradition in the Jewish theological history, like um, that they are a people. Like this is what's so staggering if you look back at the, the saints in the Old Testament. Like their conversation, the way they, they talk to God conversationally is so um, real. Uh, you read the Psalms, you read the way Moses like says, I can't do what you're asking me to do anymore. And, uh, and I just so appreciate that. A, gr- a group of people who have walked so closely with God that they are at times willing to ask God, are you tricking me? Are you deceiving me? Is this some sort of elaborate betrayal that's going on? What have you gotten me into? I love the, the honesty of that type of conversational relationship with God. So last week we looked at have, have you ever been betrayed? And uh, yeah, maybe walking down that, that, that memory you know, uh, brings up a lot of pain for you. This week I wanna start with a different question. Um, have you ever leapt for joy Has something so staggeringly good happened to you that it made you forget what you look like and just like react in your body and say, I am jumping for joy? Have you ever been truly ecstatic about the realization of something or the discovery of something or the news of something that you just didn't care and you leapt for joy? If not, like think for a minute, honestly, what would it take for you to leap for joy? You don't, you don't have to say what it was. Um, because here's the thing, if I'm honest, in, in, in Brooklyn, in our, in our time, in this, in this city, I sometimes feel it, it, it seems a little easier actually to ask the question, have you ever been betrayed, than have you ever leapt for joy? Like, it feels like one indicates like I've been around the block a little bit, like I'm experienced with what life is really like. I'm, I'm maybe even perhaps sophisticated, I'm jaded, but just in the right amount. Like that, we sometimes equate that a little bit with maturity, like to know that type of pain, to know that like I can't, you know, like we sort of wear a little suit of social armor as we move through our city because we expect things to be crazy or, or hard or wrong or, or, or someone to, to, you know, like to disappoint us in a significant way. So have you ever been betrayed? You're like, yeah, of course. Have you ever leapt for joy? It's like, that seems a little naive. Like jumping for joy feels like it's for kids in their pajamas. It's a little, it's a little childish. I don't know what it means exactly, uh, you know, that we should, we should think that Jesus said, like, to come into his kingdom, we have to become a little bit like children. But leaping for joy sometimes feels a little bit like people who haven't taken a serious look in the, at the world. And even in this story, like, let's be honest, even in the story that we just read, it's a baby that jumps, that leaps for joy. So both questions, I asked this last week, but both questions, have you ever been betrayed and have you ever leapt for joy, may leave you asking the same second question, which is, was I a fool? Was I a fool? That's a terrible thing to feel, like that I might have just been foolish. I might have given too much away. I think, though, that it's a worthwhile consideration to ask what, what, what makes for joy in our world, what makes for joy in our life, not just because we've lit this candle of joy for the third Sunday of Advent, but really and truly, like, let's not be so mature and jaded and sophisticated and so, so much New Yorkers that we can't experience joy, right? Because it's, if it's real and it can be experienced, then it's one of the very greatest things in the world. And let's let go of whatever we need to let go of in order to really, truly experience joy. Wouldn't that be worth it? 
to transcend happy feelings that just go along with a good turn in our circumstances for something that's like a river underneath your life that is substantial enough to, to, be, to, to keep your heart buoyant no matter what's going on in your life, that that type of joy, is that, is that possible? C.S. Lewis, it's Advent, I'm allowed to quote him as much as I want, famously writing to his friend Malcolm um, on the subject of prayer, he was trying to describe the reality of joy and how sometimes maybe... Um, when, as grown-ups, when we're, we're the least about our work, maybe when we're, when we're resting or playing, that's when we get the, 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 the most accurate taste of heaven. And at the end of this long description that I'll, I'll, I won't read to you, he says this, this, famous, this famous quote, joy is the serious business of heaven. And I love that. Like what, like just for a second, like our kids do this, like, they, they're counting down the days. Like, I, I'll tell, you know, I'll tell Champ, it's like, no, it's 12 more days, and he will just fall on the ground, just like, that's the longest time that's ever been. It's never coming. Like, he had a birthday party this week. He's like, when's Jesse's party? I'm like, it's in an hour. And he's like, no. <laughs> Lord, an hour, how long? Oh, Lord. And I was like, there's a class we've been doing in Advent. You should go to it. It's about waiting on God. But they're expecting something phenomenal. Like, are you expecting something phenomenal in the, the long arc of your life, even past death? Like, the, the Christian story is, like, pretty insistent that the best is yet to come. Like, even when it gets really, really bad for us, that the best is yet to come. Or when it gets really good for us, the best is yet to come. That, like, the kingdom is coming and that there is a joy that is so substantial. When C.S. Lewis writes about heaven and the great divorce, he talks about, like, the, the blades of grass being so substantial that it's, like, difficult for, uh, you know, for, for being not from there to even walk on it because everything is so present. So my question to myself is, can I humble myself enough to experience joy? Can you humble yourself enough to experience joy? This is the third Sunday of Advent, has already been mentioned. Our text, um, we have what is famously known as, as the Annunciation to Mary, uh, the news that she's going to carry and give birth to the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Um, then we have this encounter between Mary and Elizabeth, uh, in, in, some, in some senses in a similar situation, in other senses in a totally different situation. Then we have Mary singing a song. She, write, she writes this poem after the two of them make this startling realization. And, uh, and if you think about the context, right, these two women are in a very interesting predicament. Uh, they're two relatively poor women. Uh, they're living in a patriarchal society. Uh, they're living in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire. They're citizens of a conquered people. All their promises seem to either be dead or significantly delayed. They're living in an occupied country. Um, if you get into some of the history of how Herod the Great uh, clenched down, how Rome clenched down on the region, some horrific atrocities, literally people were crucified all, and, and hung all the way down the road leading into the the area that Mary was from as a sign that Rome's might should not be tested whatsoever. And these two women, in a sense, have huddled together in the controversy and the mystery and the confusion of what's going on with them. 
Both of them have been recent recipients of some messengers from heaven, which I know may, may, may be a non-starter for you altogether, but like, um, if you believe in miracles at all, like, let's just like uh, throw out the ranking system for a little bit and consider that they, these, you know, something tremendous has broken into both of these women's lives. You have to wonder how are the people in their life taking the news? We, don't, we, we, don't, we aren't given all those details. But at least this was true. One of them who thought they were way past the possibility of bearing children. It was not gonna happen for, for her that uh, she, she's, she's expecting. And one who is socially and, and basically apparently morally not supposed to be having a baby at all has now found that she is also expecting. So one, it's too late, and the other, it's too soon. And I feel like that is how I relate to God's timing in the world quite a bit. It's either it feels too late or too soon. Like, I'm, I, where have you been, or I'm not ready for this, is my reaction to God's activity in the world at times. So these two women are finding solace in one another. They're finding, this is like a real picture of community. They're, 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 the details of their meeting are something of a reminder that in all the like uh, candle lighting and the glow of the spirit of the Christmas season, real life is going on here. So after the news from the angel, Mary gets away, she leaves home, most likely because home is a place of tension and certainly suspicion at this time. She goes and finds her relative Elizabeth and the passage begins this way. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. I think as you, just leave that up there for a second. I think as you read through the New Testament, you find a couple of wonderful, powerful summary statements of what's going on in the whole arc of the story. And I think two of those words are right here. God sent. God sent is a powerful summary statement of the Gospels. It's a powerful summary statement of what's going on in Advent as we wait for Christmas. It's a powerful summary statement when we get to Pentecost. God, God, God sent in the middle of the turmoil of real life. In the sixth month of an impossible pregnancy, when all the promises made to Abraham seemed at least delayed, if not dead, with Rome on top of the world, with br brutal local rulers acting however they wanted to establish their power, God sent. I think if you want to summarize the activity of the New Testament, it could be God sent and God did. And later in Romans, we have this powerful description like what the law was powerless to do, God did. God did by sending, like what, what nothing of human effort could accomplish on its own, God did. God sent, God intervened, God plunged himself in the story, God entered history, God moved onto the block, God came into focus, God began to speak in a new way. The prophet Amos, <laughs> If you're, if you're tracking in the lectionary uh, readings, uh, the daily office, the, the, we, we've been reading in these obscure minor prophets, and the prophet Amos predicted a famine of the word of God, that there was a 400-year drought of God prophetically speaking to his people, and that is, is ending in these gospel accounts. God sent, God did, God, God is, 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 is moving. If you want a motive for that, God loves because God loves, God shares. We talk about the kingdom of God moving along relational lines. 
God could have done it any way that he wanted, but he chose to enter the human story and to pass the movement of the kingdom of God along relational human lines. God sent, God did, God loves, God shares. There's eight word summary of the New Testament for you. Elevator speech, probably needs a bit more. So God send an, sent an angel to this virgin girl, Mary, and then here's what happens. You, you just heard it, but I want it to be fresh in your head, so I'm gonna read a few, few, few sentences again. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Most repeated phrase in the whole story. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you were to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. The best is yet to come. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. It seems a little bit like the question Zechariah asks, but he gets like punished with nine months of silence and Mary gets off the hook somehow. There seems to be a different heart posture. We're not gonna get into that. I just wanted to bring it up and then say nothing about it. (laughs) Verse 35, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her whole in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So a couple of quick things just to observe. Maybe, yeah. We We aren't told exactly why Mary has found favor it says, Mary, you're highly favored, but there's very little, uh, there's none of her resume given. You're, you're highly favored, and here are the three reasons why. You may not have known it, but God saw you when you were seven, and the kind thing that you did to the kid who was being bullied. He also knows about your prayers. And like, we, don't, we don't get any of what qualified Mary to be highly favored in this instance, but it says that she was highly favored. More on that in a minute. We also see that like Zechariah, but slightly different heart posture, Mary's not just taking all this and be like, fantastic, it's easy to believe. She, she's not someone who's, who's, uh, who's easily duped, who's a naive child, that faith to her was just her natural state. She struggles. She struggles with the possibility of what she's being told, even though the news is coming from an angelic figure. I'd like to think that if a being from heaven showed up, sort of like after that, it's like, okay, whatever you say, I'm kind of on board with, because you're an angel. And she's like, no, really, could you go back over some of this with me again? She doesn't just take it all in. I also think it's interesting the angel's description of what the life and ministry of her son Jesus is going to be like differs a little bit from the emphasis that's given to Joseph. To Joseph, the angel says he will save his people from their sins. He's going to be a savior. He's going to deal with this spiritual problem that keeps people fundamentally at the character level separated from God. He's going to come and and heal. That's the same thing that uh, Zachariah's son, uh, John the Baptist, says when he sees Jesus walking, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is a powerful aspect of the ministry of Jesus. We're learning in these Advent stories the names of the Messiah, the the names of the Christ, and here we get that he's going to be a savior. That's what's said to Joseph, but to Mary, the angel says he's going to be a king. He's going to sit on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom is never going to end. So 
we've been learning all these different things about, about God's intervention in our world and how he's being revealed to us. And here we have two more. He is Savior and King. So Mary is going to experience joy in this story. By the end of this, this passage, she's going to be singing Um, That's, of course, not all she's going to experience. We know, we keep having to be reminded this story takes place in real life. A little bit after Jesus is born, she goes to the temple. She meets this this wild prophet named Simeon. Also, Anna is there. But Simeon says that a a sword is going to pierce your soul. So she's going to experience tremendous joy, but she's also going to experience tremendous heartache. But she's going to bury this child that's that's being born. Like, Is there a greater heartache for a parent? She's going to lose him on vacation for three days at one point. We're not going to get into that today. That'd be stressful. I was, I was thinking as I saw Elisa gathering the children, like what was her blood pressure like? She was just, we didn't, we didn't lose any of them. So another year. She, she's going to have, Mary's going to have this intimate share in the most miraculous, even as her song says, revolutionary act of love that the world has ever known. She's going to experience real kingdom of God joy in the details of her life. And here's how it starts. For her, it starts at the intersection of these two phrases. For Mary, the the joy breaking into her life and the joy breaking into the world begins at the intersection of no word from God will ever fail And may your word to me be fulfilled. That's the intersection at which God's activity breaks into our lives. Like if you want to think about a road coming down, (laughs) the promises of God saying like, I know what your circumstances look like. I know what what your moods are like. I know what you're up against. But I have made these promises. I've been making these promises all along. My promises are coming down. My promises are going to be fulfilled. My promises are breaking into the world. And then the horizontal level of us saying, okay, can I believe this? Will I accept this? Can I hang on to this? Will I, will I replace what's going on in my mind or my mood with these promises, right? And you see, right, there's an intersection, right? I am actually making a cross here. It's at that point that, that God's activity breaks into our world at the intersection of the angel saying, no word from God will ever fail. Can you possibly believe that? And then, okay then, if that's true, I'm in. Okay, for my part in it, whatever that is, for my role, for my, my space in Brooklyn in 2019, in this time of history, may your word to me be fulfilled. May I participate in whatever it is, the promise that I'm meant to share in. If you wanna make space for the joy of God to break into your life or to break into the world, begin here. Begin with, no word from God will ever fail. You can count on the the reality of the character of the God who's making these promises. And number two, make space in your life for for this, this type of phrase, may your word to me be fulfilled. The hinge point for Mary, what connects those two is she says, I'm the Lord's servant. We can't, we can't move past that too quickly. She, she says, I'm willing in a substantial way. Are you willing in a substantial way to let go of what m- might seem like your right to control your own life and to remember, oh yeah, my life is a gift that I never asked to receive anyway. Right, just put your hand up if you chose to be born. 
Right? We, we just show up here, right? And at some point, I don't know, you, like, you become conscious that I'm here having a full human experience and there's kind of nothing I can do about it. So maybe you're like not happy that you, do, that you didn't ask for it, but you're here anyway. Your life is a gift, right? But then somewhere along the way, like enough messages come to us and like, you know what? I didn't start this. I, I, I didn't do this. I just showed up here, but I thank you very much. I'll be in control from here on out. And, and this con- confrontation of this intersection comes to Mary. I think it comes to many of us. It's like, can I really believe there's a God who loves me, who cares about me, who knows me, who's made promises about how, 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 my, how my life could be, how it could go, how the world, the arc of the narrative of the world, this, this inbreaking of good news, gospel, could I really believe that, that's, that I have a share in that? But the actual moment is a moment of surrendering. It's a moment of surrendering control that we're so good at holding on to. And saying, listen, okay, I believe that I am the recipient of some incredible love that maybe pride and fear are both liars. I'm going to trust that God keeps his promise. I'm going to surrender to love. So Mary says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Mary gives us a picture of what God's salvation looks like when it breaks into a life, I think gives us a picture of what God's salvation looks like when it breaks into the world. And then right in the middle of the question, she asks what you and I would ask, right? How is this gonna happen? How will this be? Like, thank you, angel. I know you've, you seem like you've come a long way, but I'm a virgin. Like, how, how, how will this be? And the answer she's given is also a paradigm for how God's activity works in the world. The answer she's given is the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Over and over in these, in these slowed down encounters of the birth of Christ, we're getting paradigms for how God's activity works in the world. It works at the intersection of no word from God has ever failed and may your word to me be fulfilled. And right at the moment where you think, I'm really gonna do that. I'm gonna ramp up my spiritual willpower and I'm gonna really surrender to God. You run to a wall and realize you actually can't sustain that. How will it be? The power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> That's how it will be. That's how it was in the very first. That's how it has always continued. Is that God has made a way through what's going on in the life of Christ to, li- listen to this, put the very nature of his real life into us. You can be like Mary in that God can indwell you. That's how crazy what we're talking about in here is. The ghost of God comes to fill your actual real life and, and, and yet you somehow don't become a, 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 a robot or just exactly like everyone else, but somehow the spirit of God fills you and you become the most like yourself Almost like this God has made you in, in, in this God's image and knows the way you would thrive and flourish and be the most creative and the most alive and, and, and the most full of love and the most, like, what's the fruit of this God's spirit in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, the, the very things that all of us are longing for at the deepest level are created at the intersection of this God breaking into our lives and filling us with the Holy Spirit. How on earth will it be? If I just gave you a message, it was like God's made some phenomenal promises, you need to believe them and surrender. Thank you very much, come to the table. That's not great news. Because anyone who's realistically tried that knows that they can't. The gospel is the gospel because God's saying, 
what you, what the law, what morality, what, nor, what any norms were, were unable to do, God did by sending his own son. The life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus counts for us and we become those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how it begins and that's how it continues. How will any of this happen? How, how will it work? How is it possible? The Holy Spirit will come. Holy Spirit will come into you. The Holy Spirit will, will fill you. You see, the whole triune God, the mysterious Trinity, the being who is somehow up the ladder from us and not like us in some way, you're right. It's, it's impossible to get our imaginations going there. How could a being be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And yet, the Bible doesn't flinch in depicting this to us over and over and over again. How could I be so much different than a golden retriever? I don't know, but I can't explain things to a dog. And you move up the ladder, it's like, how, how can we possibly fathom what God is like? Well, he says he's made us in his image so that there is a way we can actually relate to this God. You see this triune God at work in our redemption. God the Father sent the angel, sends the Son, sends the Holy Spirit. The Son becomes what? Our Savior and King. The Holy Spirit breaks into our lives. All of this is possible. We can even fathom it because of the Holy Spirit. God is love in God's very being. Unlike when we sing God is holy, what we're singing is you are other. We're not just singing that you're perfect and you're moral. We're singing that you're other. And what we mean when we say, God, you're holy, that you're other, is that you're unlike us in a significant way. You are Father, Son, Holy Spirit in one being, and, yet, and, and so able to have love in the very center, not just power. And so extending out to us, inviting us in, this is the Christmas message. Have you ever gotten news that you were so excited about? that you forgot to get like some of the remaining details that were going to be crucial for, for carrying out the plan. Has that ever happened to you? I, I, w I, was, I was 16 and my German teacher who went by Herr Schreiber uh, gave me a car in the middle of class. Herr Schreiber wore uh, mostly maroon turtlenecks and he carried a, a plastic sword and he used to pace uh, intimidatingly up the aisles of our class and he would ask you to pronounce something and when you did it wrong, he would smash your desk with the plastic sword and he would yell you and he would get spittle that would collect right here on the edges of his mouth and then that would come at you in various, you know, sort of very, you know, guttural, glottal sort of, you know, German pronunciation kind of ways and it would get in your eyes and things. He was in class carrying his plastic sword and he began to break his normal cadence of his German lesson for us and he told us that his family had been in two car accidents in the same weekend, that his wife had been in an accident uh, sometime on Friday near Atlanta and then that he, near, uh, near our hometown in Greenville, had crashed into a deer on Sunday night and he was very distraught about this and he was upset and he basically got exasperated. He's like, who wants a car? And I was like, I, I completely want a car. I would like a car. And he's like, you can have it. I was like, oh. It was the greatest moment of my 16-year-old life. And I get home, and I'm trying to unpack this story to my parents. And they're like, hang on, what? How, how is this going to work? How? And I was like, oh, I have no idea how it's going to work. He just said I can have it. I had to go back the next morning and get some more details. My dad and I eventually had to go over to Herr Schreiber's house. We had tea. And I left with a car that was significantly banged up in the front because he hit a deer. 
But we got it fixed. My dad was in the car business and we were ready to roll. He knew a guy. We got it worked out. I feel a little bit that, that way with, with what's going on in, in this story. Like the pace of the narrative in Luke's gospel is moving so fast. It's like mind-blowing things are being announced. And then you're like, you, you just see the people almost get down the road and be like, hang on, wait, how on earth is this going to happen? How on earth could this possibly be accomplished? Mary and Elizabeth are sort of like in the narrative running towards one another. You see them embrace and be like, can you believe what's going on? I have no idea what's happening. Did you get visited by an angel? I got visited How is it going to work? And you see these two women who basically should have been in all contextual historical sense forgotten. And yet they're plunged in the center point of the story. And you just trace this line of joy that's breaking out. It's like all, it's so under the surface, like the baby gets it first. The baby leaps for joy. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. So now we have Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit. We have Mary filled with the Holy Spirit. We have the baby who's going to be born, Jesus' cousin, filled with the Holy Spirit. And the last part of this reading is that she writes a song. Because there are certain things that happen, like when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, like things happen that you're like, you laugh, you cry, you hug people, you say things that are like sappy, you like, when we begin to be filled with the Holy Spirit, the, the love of God begins to, 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 to melt our defenses. We do things like we leap for joy. We write songs. We, we put poems down. Or, or Katie emails herself. It's unbelievable. So type A. I just emailed God today. That's amazing. I love, I love that. It could not be further from how I operate, and I love it. Like the, the breadth of the body of Christ. But you're trying to put images and poetry and metaphor around an experience that's transcendent. How on earth do I make sense of what's going on? This is why people write songs. This is why people leap for joy. They realize something's breaking into their life that they can't even fathom that they get to be a part of. This joy, this joy is being made personal. It's going from a God who keeps promises to some people to a God who I can trust to keep promises to me. A God whose word is being fulfilled in me. Mary, Elizabeth, even John the Baptist are being swept up into this story. God sent, God did, God loves, God shares. God sent, God did, God loves, God shares. If you read Mary's song, and you should later, because we're not gonna go slowly through it all. We're, we're, we're out of time, basically. But it's called the Magnificat because it's the first word of the poem. If you translate it in Latin, and if you read it, you sort of would not expect a teenager who hadn't had very much educational opportunities to be writing a poem like this on the edge of an empire. Like theologians marvel at the depth and breadth and beauty of this, of, of, of this song, but the song tells us a lot. And I'm a little bit absurdist in this way. One of my favorite details is the very last line after the song is over, just to remind you that this is happening in real life. It says, Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months before she went home. How many of you guys have uh, family coming in for the holidays? How many of you guys are cool if they stay till March? <laughs> just, just keeping you up to date that real life's going on here. Like Christmas has always been a challenge. Thank you, thank you over there. I worked for that, okay? 
This song takes place in real life. The joy is personal. That's what's so tremendous. But also Mary seems to know. She seems to anticipate. She has a prophetic instinct that this is also going to change the world. And she helps to frame it for all of us for centuries to come in this song. And I just want to tell you a couple of things about the song. The song is absolutely soaked in scripture. People, some theologians, especially like historical critical, more, I'm sorry to say, like um, some of the liberal theologians you'll, you'll, you'll read, uh, they're like, this couldn't have been from Mary, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, are you serious? Like she grew up in the synagogue. She grew up with a Torah being sung around her all the time. You don't think these phrases were on the tip of her tongue? Of course they were. And this experience comes in and what comes squeezing out of her and in this moment of joy, she's leaping for joy. She's singing a song. It's Torah. It's God's promises to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to Ruth, to the whole family, the whole time. It's absolutely soaked in scripture. She has been, her life has been, say what you will, her life has been drenched in the promises of God. I think that's a powerful thing for us to think about. The second is the song longs for justice. It looks out at the world and it's not naive. It says things are not the way they should be. The people who have, have plenty have more than they need. There are people who are absolutely hungry and this situation needs to be made right. Generosity needs to, to, to flow. Justice needs to roll down like a river. The powerful, hungry, wealthy oppressors who, who are bending the world to their own liking can't have the final word and her song cries out for justice. This is the Christmas message. The song counts on mercy. It's not just saying, uh, look, we're, we're the good ones and it's an us and them situation. She's saying all of us need God to deal with us in mercy. The song counts on mercy. And the song means joy. Even someone here in her scandalous position who's having to run from home, she knows that her son will always be seen as illegitimate by some. She doesn't know how it is all going to work out. There's some cryptic, prophetic things that have been spoken to her and yet she's singing out for joy. I like to think about, this is, this is the home Jesus is gonna be raised in. Soaked in scripture, longing for justice, counting on mercy, serious about joy. That's the kind of home I wanna have for my kids. That's a home I wanna be in. That's a, that's a church I wanna be in. It's a family I want to be in, soaked in scripture, longing for justice, counting on mercy, serious about joy. I think these things be be become true in the life of Jesus, and that means they become true in the body of Christ, which we are. We had a word spoken over our church I'm not gonna belabor as you guys have heard us talk about this so much, but 2017 and 2018 were the hardest years of our, of our church's life. They were some of the hardest years of my, of my life personally. They were challenging in so many ways. And in the middle of that, someone, uh, I, I, I got a powerful sense of, of, of God speaking to me in one of those ways. It doesn't happen necessarily every day, but it was a tremendously powerful sense that God was speaking to me the words, you have been acquainted with sorrow but you are anointed with joy. And I was like, ah, it was like a balm on the rawness of my soul at the time that I heard that. You have been acquainted with sorrow, but you have also been anointed with joy. And those things were true about Jesus. <laughs> and those things are true about us because we are united to Jesus. So my question for for myself this season in Advent is do, 
I want this share of joy that God is, is so exuberant to offer. Think about the activity of God in this behind the scenes. God is sending, God is arriving, God is filling. God is saying, you have no idea how much I want you to share and what we've been sharing since before the foundations of the world. That's what Jesus' prayer at the end, but when he's before he's betrayed, is Father, let them in on what we've had since the very beginning. When John, who's finally getting a grip of this, the gospel writer, says he's writing this, he's saying, I'm, I'm telling you this story so that your joy might be complete, so that it might go to the very edges, to the margins and overflowing out of your soul, out of your life. I, I, out of everything that you are, that your joy might be complete. Where on earth do we go? How on earth does it happen? It happens at the intersection of no word from God will ever fail. And may your word to me be fulfilled. It happens when you say, I can't do that on my own. Of course not. The Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. It happens when we realize we're in this together. You find yourself overwhelmed, you need to run on to Elizabeth's house. Sort this out, get in a group, get with other people, tell them what's really going on in your life, follow Jesus together. You can't do it on your own, you can't do it by your willpower. We have to have the Holy Spirit in a shared way. And praise God, we do. That's what the arrival of Advent is. The arrival of joy, the serious business of heaven. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I ask that we could humble ourselves enough to experience your joy. I pray that we could take a good, long look at your promises. Ask ourselves if we can really believe them. Ask ourselves if we can say, okay, I'm on board. Let this, let this happen in me. Let this happen in my world, in my sphere of relationships, in my life. Let it break in. Come, Lord Jesus. I pray for your help across the whole breadth of our church in that, Lord. We need you as much as we ever have. God, we need you. We're not leaning on our own experiences, leaning on our own ability, leaning on our own willpower. We need you. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill us with your life. Fill us with your joy. I pray you would show each of us how we are meant to respond this morning as we worship, as we sing, as we take this meal of grace and communion. Lead us, Holy Spirit, as you've been faithful to do. In Christ's name, amen.